Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to the Islamic History Podcast. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail. This is a bonus episode filling in the space between Season 7 and Season 8. This episode is brought to you by our premium podcast, Islamic History Exclusive. We have four seasons so far discussing the life of Salahuddin al-Ayyubi, the war between Ibn Zubair and the Umayyads, and two seasons of the Umayyad Caliphate. If you need to hear more Islamic history, if this is not enough for you, then consider joining Islamic History Exclusive. If you'd like to join, simply open up your Apple Podcast app or your Spotify app and search for Islamic History Exclusive. You can also join by visiting patreon.com slash Islamic History or at islamichistoryexclusive.com. This episode is also brought to you by the Prophet Muhammad podcast. This is a free podcast chronicling the life of Allah's last messenger, sallallahu alayhi wasallam, and it is available on all platforms. All right, with that, we are going to begin our discussion of the Battle of Talas. Now, you may be wondering, why are we discussing the Battle of Talas? What is the Battle of Talas? Well, first of all, this is going to be the first in a two-part series on the Battle of Talas. This battle, this battle featured the forces of the Abbasid Caliphate going up against the forces of the Chinese Tang Dynasty. This was one of the first major engagements between Muslims and Chinese, and it would wind up shaping the history of Central Asia for years to come. My interest in this story began when I was doing research for the Umayyad Caliphate. I was curious about how the Muslims would deal with conquering these new regions in what is now China and Pakistan. Now back then, before Islam became established in these regions, many of the inhabitants of this area were Buddhist. So I also started researching how these regions, especially Central Asia, went from Buddhism to Islam. This was especially interesting if we consider that big fiasco so many years ago with the Taliban and their Buddhist statues. Now while researching, I kept coming across references to the Battle of Talas. And as I learned more about it, this seemed like a very fascinating and interesting topic. After all, it featured a resurgent Tang dynasty going up against a brand new Abbasid dynasty. Initially, I intended to discuss this battle within one one episode, but as usual, the story went longer than expected. So in this episode, we'll simply discuss the background and the origins of this conflict. And in the next episode, we'll discuss the actual battle itself. And so with that, let's briefly discuss Central Asia before the Muslims and the Chinese arrived. It all started with Sogdiana, or sometimes called Sogdia. This is a region and a civilization in Central Asia between the Amu Darya and the Sur Darya rivers. These are two rivers flowing out of the North Aral Sea on the border of Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan. Both rivers flow south and then turn sharply 
east towards China, and the region between these two rivers as they flowed east towards China, but still remained west of China, was called Sogdiana. Now, before Islam came, much of Sogdiana was part of the Turkic Cognate. The Turkic Cognate was established around 552 CE, and to give you some reference, Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam was born around 570 CE. By 576, the Turkic Cognate stretched from northern China all the way to eastern Ukraine. Eventually, however, it split into two separate kingdoms. There was the eastern cognate covering much of northern China to the Chinese border with Kazakhstan. And then there was the western cognate, which covered the rest of the former Turkic cognate, that is, from Kazakhstan to eastern Ukraine. Now, there are many cities within these two cognates that benefited from the Silk Road. The Silk Road, as I'm sure you know, was a trade network connecting the Far East, particularly China, to Europe. Now, as the merchants passed through this area along the Silk Road, they often rested, traded, and paid local taxes. So there were many major Central Asian cities along this route, including Samarkand, Bukhara, Balk, and Merv. So now let's discuss the rise of the Tang Dynasty. The Tang Dynasty was founded during the decline of the Sui Dynasty. The Sui Dynasty ruled much of eastern China and parts of central China. However, corruption and infighting within the Sui Dynasty led to rebellions throughout the empire. In 616, Li Yuan, who was a powerful noble, was appointed by the Sui dynasty as the governor of Taiwan in what is now the modern Shangxi province of China. Taiwan is in eastern China, about 240 miles southeast of Beijing. Now, while he was there, once the governor got established in Taiwan, several rebel groups began encouraging Li Yuan to join the rebellion. He hesitated at first, but eventually marched on the capital and overthrew the Sui dynasty. With that, Li Yuan became the first ruler of the Tang dynasty, and he took on the imperial name of Gaozu. Emperor Gaozu would wind up ruling from 622 to 626 CE. Now, up to this point, the eastern cognate had been expanding deeper and deeper into northern China. Li Ximin, who was Emperor Gaozu's son, had remained in the east near Taiwan. Li Ximin continued to fight several battles in this region, consolidating Tang dynasty control. One of the most important battles during this period was his victory over the Turkic Cognate in 624 CE. For reference, this was the same year as the Battle of Badr. In 626 CE, Li Ximin became emperor when his father abdicated the throne. When he became emperor, Li Ximin took on the imperial name of Taizong, and he would go on to become one of the greatest emperors in Chinese history. 
Taizong initially focused on conquering and defeating the two Turkic cognates. He defeated the Eastern Cognate within three years, but it would take him nearly 20 years to finally subdue the Western Cognate. Conquering the Western Cognate was a slow, grinding process. It featured several large-scale battles with the Tang trying to conquer various Turkic city-states and fighting against the Cognate allies. The Tang Dynasty also had to conquer various cities surrounding the Tarim Basin. The Tarim Basin is a large oval-shaped desert in Xinjiang province. Once these cities were defeated and under Tang authority, the Tang Dominion, the Tang Dynasty realm, was now approaching the Pamir Mountains. The Pamir Mountains form like a natural border between China and Kyrgyzstan, and it's often considered the dividing line between China and Central Asia. Emperor Taizong died in 649 CE, and his son, Gaozong, carried on the war effort. Emperor Gaozong and the Tang Dynasty finally defeated the last Turkic opposition in 657 CE. To give you some reference, this was the same year that Ali ibn Abi Talib and Muawiyah ibn Sufyan fought at the Battle of Sifin. However, within a year of this victory, starting in 665 CE, a series of Turkic revolts in the western region threatened Tang dominance. To make matters worse, these revolts coincided with aggressive expansion by the Empire of Tibet. The Tibetans were encroaching from the south into the Tarim Basin in Xinjiang. Things continued to get worse for the Tang Dynasty as the Eastern Turks began asserting their independence in 682 CE. Once again, for reference, this was the same year that the Umayyad armies, led by Okba ibn Nafi'a, defeated the Byzantines in Libya. So the Muslims at this time were beginning to conquer North Africa. The Tibetan advances opened up a third front for the Tang Dynasty, really stretching their ability to appropriately respond to all of these threats. So at this point of time, the Tang Dynasty was constantly on the defensive and they lost several battles during this period. Things began to turn around in 713 CE when a new emperor named Zhuizhong ascended the throne as the seventh Tang ruler. So let's leave the Tang Dynasty for a moment and focus on what's going on in the Muslim world. In the years following the Battle of Karbala and the Umayyad defeat of Ibn Zubair, the Umayyad dynasty, the Umayyad Caliphate, began expanding into Central Asia. Now, we discussed this in depth in our series on the Umayyad Caliphate, which is a premium podcast, but I encourage you to go listen if you want to know more about the details and the characters involved in this expansion into Central Asia. Now, the Muslim armies had already begun moving into Central Asia during the caliphates of Uthman, Ali, and Muawiyah. However, the expansion ceased because of two major civil wars within the Muslim community. 
The first was, as we mentioned earlier, between Ali ibn Abi Talib and Muawiyah ibn Abi Sufyan. But then there was another one between the Umayyads and Ibn Zubair. The Umayyads, as we mentioned and as you probably already know, emerged victorious in both of these conflicts, and they continued the expansion into Central Asia. The Umayyads sort of grouped all of their Central Asian conquests into one province called Khorasan. Khorasan, however, was a sub-district of the Iraqi province. This meant that the governor of Iraq was also the governor of Khorasan. And the governor of Iraq during much of this period was Hajjaj ibn Yusuf. If you're familiar with that name and the person who was Hajjaj ibn Yusuf, he played a very major and devastating role in the history of Islam. Again, I encourage you to subscribe to Islamic History Exclusive to learn more about this individual. In 86 AH, which corresponds to 704 CE, Hajjaj ibn Yusuf appointed a man named Qutayba ibn Muslim to be his sub-governor of Khorasan. Now, Umayyad rule in Khorasan was very tenuous when Qutayba came to power. Khorasan was an extremely large territory incorporating several modern nations. In fact, parts of all of the stands, except Pakistan, were in Khorasan. So that included Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, parts of Kazakhstan, Tajikistan, I may be forgetting a stand, but oh, parts of Afghanistan as well. All or parts of these different modern nations were considered part of the Umayyad province of Khorasan. So this was a very, very large region. The Umayyads faced constant rebellion from the local populations of Khorasan. The major ethnic groups were primarily Uzbek and Sogdian. The Sogdians were originally from Persia, but had slowly become Turkified. They mixed with the nomadic Turkic people of the region and created a distinct ethnic group. Many of these regions that the Umayyads were now conquering had recently become independent after the fall of the Sassanid Empire of Persia. So the major religions in these regions before Islam were Zoroastrianism and Buddhism. The Umayyad capital of Khorasan was Merv, which is in southern Uzbekistan. But beyond that, much of the Umayyad control of Central Asia was done through vassals, not through direct Umayyad control. These vassals, who were supposed to be loyal to the Umayyads, actually often betrayed or rebelled against them. As the new governor of this region, Qutayba ibn Muslim began consolidating and strengthening Umayyad control in Khorasan. One of his first actions was in northern Afghanistan. He suppressed rebellions into Khorasan and Bakh. Then he went on to force Nizak, who was the ruler of Bactria. Bactria is a region in northern Afghanistan slash western Tajikistan, he forced Nizak to submit to the Umayyads as a vassal. Qutayba then began an extended campaign to capture Bukhara in Uzbekistan, 
Then, beginning in 87 AH or 705 CE, Qutayba ibn Muslim began an extended campaign to capture Bukhara in Uzbekistan. Bukhara was finally subdued around 90 AH or 707 CE. Qutayba then returned to northern Afghanistan to face Nizak, who had rebelled against the Umayyads. Several other smaller states within the Khurasan province had joined Nizak in this rebellion, but within a year, Qutayba had defeated Nizak and had put down this rebellion. But as soon as he had done that, more rebellions sparked up in Samarkand and Khawazm in 92 AH. Both of these areas, Samarkand and Khawazm, are in Uzbekistan, but they were hundreds of miles apart. Finally, by 93 AH, which corresponds to about 710 CE, Qutayba ibn Muslim had put both of these rebellions down. I'm going to focus a little bit more on Samarkand. Qutayba was especially harsh on the rebels of Samarkand. First, most of the local nobility of this region had been killed in the fighting, so now the, the head of the resistance had been chopped off. After he defeated them, Qutayba ibn Muslim then demanded that they pay him tribute of 2 million dirhams on the spot and another 200,000 dirhams annually. In addition to that, he also demanded 3,000 slaves who were neither too young nor too old, and he also demanded that the people of Samarkand had to build a masjid or a mosque within the city. Then, he wasn't done yet, then he ordered all of the fighting men to leave the city, burned all of the idols in the city, but he wasn't done yet. Qutayba ibn Muslim then ordered all of the fighting men of Samarkand to leave the city. He then went on to burn all of the idols in the city and destroyed most of the temples in Samarkand. In case you're wondering, the Sogdian people of Samarkand followed a religion called Tengrism, which worshipped a sky deity. Now with Khurasan somewhat pacified, Qutayba then marched on Kashgar. Kashgar is in western China in what is now Zhenjiang province. Its population now, at least, is mostly Uyghur Muslim, roughly 85% Uyghur Muslim. Kashgar eventually submitted to Qutayba ibn Muslim as a vassal. However, this brought Qutayba's expansions to an end. Qutayba's expansion and conquest in Central Asia ceased with the deaths of two very important individuals. First was his boss, Hajjaj ibn Yusuf, who died in 95 AH. And then was his boss's boss, the Caliph, Al-Walid ibn Abdul Malik, in 96 AH. The new Caliph, who succeeded Al-Walid, was Al-Walid's brother, Sulaiman ibn Abdul Malik. Sulaiman, however, began purging the caliphate of his brothers, the deceased caliph's supporters. This, of course, included Qutayba ibn Muslim in Khorasan. 
Qutayba instead rebelled against Caliph Suleiman ibn Abd al-Malik, but he was eventually killed by his own soldiers in 97 AH, which roughly corresponds to 716 CE. Let's discuss now the fall of the Umayyads and the rise of the Abbasids. After Caliph Suleiman, the Umayyads faced severe instability within the Khilafat. We'll discuss these details in more depth in the next season of the Umayyad Caliphate for premium subscribers, but for now, we'll do a brief overview. First, you have to understand that there was significant resentment against the Umayyad dynasty. One of the major points of resentment came from the non-Arab Muslims living within the Umayyad Caliphate. Either their conversion to Islam was not accepted, or even if it was accepted, many of them still had to pay the jizya. The jizya, as some of you may know, is the tax imposed on non-Muslim citizens living within the Muslim Khilafat. The Umayyads were reluctant to cancel the jizya for the non-Arab Muslims as they needed this tax revenue to maintain their military and to support their lavish lifestyle. Another point of resentment came from the Shiites. The Shiites or the Shi'iyatu Ali were those Muslims who supported the Khilafat of Ali ibn Abi Talib during his conflict with Muawiyah ibn Abi Sufyan. The Shiites believed the Umayyads had usurped the caliphate from Ali ibn Abi Talib and his family. There were also many Muslims who simply did not like the hereditary aspect of the Umayyad dynasty. The Muslims initially had believed the caliphate should not be passed from father to son like a monarchy, Many Muslims preferred a more egalitarian way of choosing the leader where the leader was chosen based upon his merit and based upon his qualities and not based upon who his father was. Another problem the Umayyads had to deal with was tribalism. Tribalism was still a big deal in Arab culture. For instance, the Yemenis, or the southern Arabs, they resented the northern Arabs who controlled the caliphate. On top of all of these issues, a civil war has sparked within the Umayyad family, weakening them even further. And finally, the Umayyad military was frustrated with these long campaigns that kept them away from home miles and miles away from home for extended periods of time. With all of these problems going on, a group calling themselves Abbasiya began secretly plotting to overthrow the Umayyads. The Abbasiya operated out of the Khorasan province and they began an anti-Umayyad propaganda campaign. Now, the Abbasiya, or the Abbasids, the Abbasid movement kept their goals very vague in order to appeal to as many people, to as many people who resented and disliked the Umayyads as possible. Finally, in 747 CE, the Abbasids launched their revolt. From Khorasan, the Abbasid armies began taking over parts of Central Asia. And by 749, the Abbasids had defeated two Umayyad armies and had taken most of Iraq. 
The fighting between the Abbasids and the Umayyads finally culminated with the Battle of the Zab in 750 CE in northern Iraq. The Abbasids wound up defeating the Umayyads, nearly destroying their entire army. The last Umayyad caliph, Marwan II, he fled towards Egypt. After their victory at the Battle of the Zab, the Abbasids went on to take Damascus, which was the center of the Umayyad stronghold and their major point of power. The Abbasids eventually killed Marwan II, the last Umayyad caliph, and most of the Umayyad family. With that, the Abbasids now controlled most of the former Umayyad territory. The only territory the Abbasids did not have was Andalusia or the Iberian Peninsula. This was the only territory that remained under Umayyad control. Those Umayyads who survived the bloody purge from the Abbasids relocated to Andalusia and established a rump Umayyad state. All right, so now we have established the origins of both sides of this conflict, both the Tang Dynasty and the Abbasid Khilafat. In the next episode, we'll discuss the events that brought the Tangs and the Abbasids into conflict. We'll also, of course, discuss the Battle of Talas itself. And finally, inshallah, we will discuss the historical ramifications of this battle. But until then, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.